So just a quick review of what we've been talking about. A few weeks back, I laid out for you a model or a paradigm, if you will, on how to view your spiritual growth and how to view my spiritual growth. So this helps me tremendously. So in hoping that it would help all of us to be able to kind of get an idea of what does it mean to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? What exactly, what exactly is happening? And we begin to look at a process of moving from information to what? Revelation to transformation. So as we grow spiritually or grow in any area for that matter but as we grow in our context as we grow spiritually we are receiving information we're receiving it through our ears and our eyes we are reading the bible we are reading other books about the bible we are hearing sermons about the bible and quoting scripture we're talking to other people we're encouraging other people through our shared stories and experiences with god and we're receiving this information into our brain that's where it comes through our eyes and through our ears but the purpose of god is not for it to stay right here this information needs to become revelation and we talked about that many of us have a lot of information but not much revelation. Or much of the information that we have in our brain has not yet been converted to revelation. Now we know what information is, but remember what revelation was. Revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypse, which means the, the, the unveiling or the revealing of. And we use the example that if you're eating in a nice restaurant and somebody brings you the food, but the food is covered up with the stainless steel top and you're not sure what it is and they set it down in front of you, you know there's food there, obviously, but when they uncover it, you see it right in front of you. You see a filet mignon, you know, cooked medium. You, you see the twice baked potato with butter and sour cream and chives and fresh bacon bits on top. You see the grilled asparagus that's laying right there. You see that. Uh, that's enough. All right. But, what, but the point is, you know there's food under there, but revelation is when you get to experience what's under there. That's how you know you're receiving revelation. It's not just enough to know there's food on the plate. It's having a better understanding of what it is. You get to smell it, experience it, and eat it. So when we move from information to revelation, we talked about something that we have to do to convert the information to revelation. Remember what that was? Faith. We have to believe it. It's not enough just to know something, but we have to believe what we're reading. And when we, we believe it by faith, it begins to change us. The Bible says it like this, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So when we, by faith, believe information, it becomes truth to us, and then truth sets us free because truth is not a piece of information. Truth is a person. His name is Jesus. That's why it must become truth first. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So our goal is not to get more information. Our goal is to know a person. And the Holy Spirit through revelation will take God's word and take this information and convert it to truth. And then truth begins to set us three, free through revelation. But we get the revelation of God's word. We begin to see the food. We begin to smell the food. It's, it's, it's unveiled before us. But then what do you have to do? It's, in other words, just because you get revelation doesn't mean you're going to experience level three, which is called transformation. What do you have to do when you see the food? You've got to eat the food. There's a lot of us, we can have revelation on a variety of things, but it doesn't mean we're eating it. We're just kind of looking at it. We're walking down the buffet and we're looking at all these beautiful things, but we don't eat it. We have to obey the revelation that we receive in order to have true transformation, which is true change. That's when we're, that's when we're changed. We are, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, the Bible says, and that's when we become another person. That's how this thing works. So do you get it? Information, we, we are receiving it. Then we need to believe the information we're receiving. It becomes truth, pointing us to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we get the revelation of this, and there's always going to be acts of obedience associated with the revelation we receive. As we begin to do these things, we experience 
transformation. We begin to step into the new person that we already are. So as we grow as sons and daughters of the, of the Lord, it's not that we are becoming somebody new. We are already brand new, and we're actually becoming our real self. We're actually becoming our real self as we go through transformation. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the grid, right? Information, revelation, transformation. We're all in that process right now. We're all here tonight in the middle of that process right now. As I am talking and you're reading the Bible, we are experiencing information. We're actively asking the Holy Spirit to take this information, we believe this, and convert it to revelation. And that when we leave here tonight, we're going to hopefully all have some things that we can do in obedience to the revelation that we receive. And so we begin to grow as a Christian. That's the process. Now, what we've been centering our hearts on is answering three questions that become the feeder streams to the process of information, revelation, transformation, right? Three feeder streams that are actually three separate questions that we're going to answer. Now, there's probably more questions, but these three, in my estimation, are probably the most important questions. The one is, who am I? And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We spent some time on that. Who am I? Who, who are we? It's a question of identity. We're asking ourselves that question. The second question is, what does God want? What does God want? And the third question is like one of my favorites is, why is it so difficult? Because this is a question sometimes that we don't talk often enough about the church is we present a gospel, we present the Bible, and we don't tell people why it's so difficult. Because it actually is difficult. There are significant challenges associated with the process that we're in. So as we're getting information and revelation and experiencing transformation based on these three questions. Now we talked about that identity is the central question. And we dealt with this, it's in your notes, but really quickly, when we talk about identity, it's the area that we need the most revelation on. Because we typically spend more time in our Christian walk focused on what does God want me to do and not focused on who I am as a son or daughter. So if I'm spending 80 or 90% of my time, my prayer life, focused on God, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to be getting much revelation on who I am. So I suggested to us, I encouraged all of us to begin to change our questions a little bit and not be focused so much around what we're supposed to be doing and more focused on who we are. And as we begin to focus on that, God begins to show us some things and we, and we find out that you know, God didn't just make us to get something done. We're not his gophers. That's not why he made us to get something done. He made us for relationship. Identity will teach us that. So we talked about the process then of once we know our identity, then we're introduced to this beautiful thing called intimacy that the Lord desires to have with his sons and daughters. So identity reveals to us intimacy. What does God want? And then intimacy causes us to discover our inheritance. Who knows we have an inheritance? As sons and daughters of the Most High God. Our inheritance is best seen in the story of the prodigal son. When the son comes home and the robe is put on his back, the ring is put on his finger, the sandals on his foot, there's a fatted calf that's been slaughtered and a big party. In other words, you, 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 you come into your inheritance out of your identity. So identity produces intimacy. Intimacy produces inheritance. And then we enter into the, to the destiny that God has for us. But modern religion will reverse that process, and we start off with destiny. What's your destiny? Because that's directly tied into doing, and that's not what God's after. I don't think God is nearly as concerned about what we are doing or not doing so much as about our knowledge of who we are in him. That's what he's most concerned about. So that's why we're talking about this, and we illustrated this in another way. That when we get born again, and all of us come from different kind of backgrounds, some of us Baptists, some of us Catholics, some of us Methodists, some of us just plum heathen, you know, I don't know where you came from, but, but all of us came to the Lord probably with some kind of a message that Jesus is our Savior. Many of us have come to the Lord out of a situation that we were in bad shape. 
Most of us sometimes have come to the Lord because we were, we were hitting rock bottom or on our way to rock bottom. Life was messing up on us. Circumstances were bad. We lost things. And, and we said, Lord, I have made a mess in my life. I'm coming to you. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And guess what Jesus does? He saves so we're introduced to the person of Jesus Christ as our Savior, and he saves us out of our mess with his amazing grace. We're saved out of that, and that's just a beautiful, wonderful thing. But for many, we get stuck right there is our primary revelation of Jesus. He's our Savior, and we, like, stay right there. I'm saved. Hallelujah. I'm saved. Every sermon we hear, everything we read talks about we're saved, and that's great. But Jesus is more than just a Savior. And maybe we grow a little bit, and we begin to learn and go to church, and we, and we start getting some more revelation, and we discover that he's not just our Savior, but he's also our Lord. He's our, our King. We're not just saved from something. Now we recognize that, oh, he is Lord over our life. Someone once said, if he's not, you know, Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. In other words, he is Lord over everything. And then we begin to say, okay, Lord, I'm going to bring my whole life under submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. My money, my relationships, how I talk, everything comes under his Lordship. We begin to get revelation from God's word on that he's our Lord. And that's a beautiful place. He's our Savior now. He's our Lord. He's in control. But many of us might get hung up right there. And we never get beyond he's my Savior and my Lord. That's where I was for years and years and years and years until I began to realize he's not just a savior. He's not just my Lord and King, but he's also a father. He's also a father. Jesus would teach us to pray. Remember the Lord's prayer? Our father who art in heaven in King James style, hallowed be thy name. Our father, those first couple of words of the Lord's Prayer are perhaps the most important because even embedded in the Lord's Prayer is our identity. It wasn't our God, but it was our Father. When the disciples saw Jesus pray and they asked him the question, Jesus, teach us to pray. In other words, they were watching Jesus pray and they saw something in the prayer life of Jesus that caused them to ask the question, Jesus, teach us to pray like that. And that's what precipitated the teaching on the Lord's Prayer. When you pray, pray this way, our Father. So then you move from Savior to Lord to Father, and that opens up, I mean, a, a whole other paradigm of understanding our relationship with God as our Father. Now, some of us had good fathers. Some of us had bad fathers. Some of us had abandoned fathers. They just, they, you know, left us. I don't know what your experience was with your natural father, but no matter what your experience was, how bad he was or how great he was, our heavenly father is better in every conceivable way. And then you discover, oh, dad, you're like, that means I can approach the throne of grace boldly. You know the scripture, right? Not out of arrogance or pride, because my dad is sitting on the throne. I found out when my kids were little, they had no inhibition to come up to me no matter where I was. I could be preaching up front. I could be in an important meeting, talking to somebody, being writing about something. And my little kids didn't have any inhibitions of running right up to me and interrupting me in the middle of something. Why? Because I'm their dad. And they knew they had access to me all the time. So you see why the revelation of God as our Father is so critical, because Father means access. It means love, that the Holy Spirit has been shed abroad in our heart, that now we can call God Abba, Father. It's, we can call him Dad. We can call him Daddy, if you want to go even there. That's the level of intimacy that God is inviting us into. How many of us need a dad? It's beautiful. And the, and the reason then we realize that, so as we get the revelation of our father, we find out discipleship is not a class, it's not a book, it's not a course that you get your cute certificate in. Discipleship is simply being reparented by your heavenly father because your earthly father was inadequate. He was, he was inadequate. I'm an earthly father, I'm totally inadequate to disciple my kids ultimately. Only my heavenly father can do that. So when you think about that is, discipleship is simply being reparented 
by your heavenly Father. That's why Jesus said, unless you become like a little child, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. We must become like a little child because we need to be reparented. I don't care how good your mom and dad was, we all need to be reparented by our loving heavenly Father, by the Holy Spirit. And then once you begin to meet the Father, there's a natural thing that's going to happen right after that because the Father wants to introduce you to his son because whether you like it or not you're a bride if you're a man you can just go ahead and say it i'm jesus's girl <laughs> i know it sounds a little weird but it's true the body of christ we are the bride of christ we're his bride and the father wants to introduce you to the groom which is jesus and that even enhances the intimacy that much more we have a father, now we have a groom. So you see where the intimacy comes. So what happens is, is if, is if all we have is our Savior and our Lord understanding of God, now that gets us into heaven and, and we can do great things, but, but we're like, man, we're like, you know, you know, missing something over here that's precious and beautiful. It's the relationship and the intimacy that comes with knowing God. And I don't want to miss out on that. I don't want to miss out on anything that he has for us. That's the goodness of that. So I'll bet you, if you think about your own Christian life right now, I bet you can put yourself somewhere on, on that little scale I just gave you, kind of where you find yourself in your relationship with God. Do you, do you see him more? I'm, yeah, he's, he's my Savior. I, I kind of get that. Yeah, he's kind of my Lord, nah, sort of my Lord. Yeah, I, I've got the Lord thing down good. Um, well, I don't quite get the Father piece because, man, my dad wasn't a good dad, and I'm having a hard time relating to God as Father. Maybe having some issues there, and maybe the whole idea of the groom and you being like, especially a man that I'm like the bride, and you really, that just completely messes with your brain. So you can like, you can probably find yourself somewhere on that scale and say, okay, Lord, this is where I need revelation on. And we need revelation on all four areas at the exact same time. In other words, it's not like we get Savior figured out, we move on. I mean, we need revelation on every single area at the exact same time so we can grow and be a Christian, <laughs> be somebody who follows Jesus. Is that coming across kind of clear? Can you put yourself on that little scale somewhere? You kind of know sort of right, right where you are. It really helps us when it comes to asking God for greater revelation in who we are. So I know that's kind of a longer review, but it's just this identity piece and asking ourselves the question, who I am, is so central to who we are. The more revelation I get of who I am, the more I become who I really am. And I step into what it means to be the son of God. I told you a couple weeks ago about the guy that I met. Remember, that was, that was, a, that was a 102 years old, and he, and he looked like he was 70. I mean, just there was a guy who was walking in a, a, a complete revelation of who he is as a, as a son of God. I think it's limitless. It's limitless based on the revelation we have of who we are, what it means to be a son of God. All right, the next question. This is a topic that we're going to not hurry through because there's a lot to talk about here. This is where, this is kind of like the, you know, white stuff in the middle of the Oreo. I mean, this is where it gets really good in, in, in understanding what he has called us to do, how we're called to interact with him, as we begin asking the central question, what does God want? Why did God make us? What does God want? Have you ever asked yourself that question? God, what do you want? You know, you're, we're going through situations and difficulties and we're struggling. God, what is it that you want? Well, we're going to focus on answering that question and you're going to find out what God wants is much more simple than you think it is. But simple doesn't necessarily mean easy. In order to get there, we're going to talk about some things to lay some foundation. But in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. We're going to talk about speaking in tongues. We're going to talk about all these kind of subjects that actually are part of the answer to the question of what does God want. So let me just ask you, what does God want? Relationship, any other words? Our heart, intimacy, any other synonyms? What does God want? Love. What was that? Praise, good. What else? Obedience. 
Good. These are all good. So these are things, these are things that what, what God wants. Now, we can say that, but many of us don't live like that's what he wants. Many of us oftentimes live under this idea, I got to do more stuff to please him. And that's really not what God is after. So let's talk about just a few things, right? When we ask about what does God want, we need to know three things that are really important that undergird our theology and our understanding about who God is, the nature and the characteristics of God. So in the realm of theology, we talk about his incommunicable attributes. Those are things about God that we don't find in ourselves. In other words, we are like God in many ways, but we are not like God in many ways too. In other words, there are things that God is that, that we are not that make him God. And the, and the deeper our theology is, our understanding of God, the actually the higher our worship can go. In other words, the more we know who God is, it actually enhances our worship and it doesn't hinder our worship. So we should never be scared of the word theology. Every one of us in this room are theologians. We are. We're all theologians because we're all studying God. That's why we're here. So all of us are a theologian. And we're learning theology. In other words, who is this God that we are serving? So here are just a few things that directly speak to some of his um, incommunicable attributes, who God is that we are not. And it's why he made us, part of these things. So we need to know three things. One, it wasn't because he needed us. Now that sounds obvious, but it's important for us to get that. God didn't make us because he needed us. Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God does not need anything. There's no need in God. We need stuff, don't we? We need air and we need food and we need things to survive. God needs absolutely nothing. He is existing entirely within himself. He does not need anything. He didn't make us because he was lonely. Long before we were here, God already had a family. Who was God's family? The Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, think about that for a second. People that struggle with the Trinity... It really makes sense, doesn't it? Because if God is love, do you believe God is love? First John tells us, right, that God is love. Well, in order to be love, there must be someone to love or God could not be love. The definition of love is to have somebody to love. So therefore, in the Trinity was the purest manifestation of love. God loving the Son, the Son loving the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loving God, and you just, it was a triangle of perfect divine love and fellowship. So you see why God can never be lonely. So we think about why is there a necessity for the Trinity? It's because if God is love, then, then who was he loving before he made us? Because if he's love, what makes love love is someone to love. Am I getting too deep? Does it sound a little weird? So God existed before us in perfect love with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. He had plenty of company. He didn't make us because he needed us. He didn't make us because he needed his ego fed. It's not like God made us to satisfy a craving he had to be worshipped. Because that would imply that God had some form of insecurity inside of him. God is not insecure in himself. He didn't make us to get us to worship him so he could feel better about himself or to boost his ego. That's not why he made us. Aren't you glad? Despite not needing us, God chose to create us anyway. So he did not need us, but yet he chose to create us anyway out of his what great love i love this passage jeremiah 31 3 god says i have loved you with an everlasting love what does everlasting mean 
Yeah, it's, a, it's this forever kind of love. I have loved you with an everlasting love. God loved us before he even created us. It's impossible to get our heads and our hearts around this idea, but it's true. That's what everlasting love means. God loves us to the fullest extent. Now that's mind-boggling for us because we have a problem with time a little bit. What does everlasting mean? Can you even begin to comprehend infinity? I can't comprehend infinity because infinity is, for, is like how long? How do you like measure time? You don't measure time up against eternity. For example, I guarantee you this. If I made a deposit into your checking account of $20 billion, I bet you you would not even worry with keeping your checkbook register anymore. I bet you you would probably quit even saving receipts. I bet you would quit reconciling your checkbook. Why? Because there's $20 billion in the account. Do you really think you're going to probably, all right, I bought a 50-cent piece of gum. I'm going to, like, do the math, 20 billion minus 0.50, right? At some point in time, you quit doing the math, don't you? So that's what sort of we're talking about. It's, it's impossible to measure what we are talking about here because God created time. He exists. Time, he exists outside of time and inside of time. So that means, when you think about it for a second, it gets kind of mind-blowing. And Albert Einstein and other, the theory of relativity and other, they're beginning to see now with basically quantum mechanics, they're learning that, you know, time is not a static thing. It can be bent and it can be altered. We know now, just from our atomic clocks on the top of like Mount Everest are different than our atomic clocks at sea level. There's a disparity between the passage of time, just based on the distance and gravity and things that are way over my head. But what it tells you is this, that time has flex built into it. It's not static like what we once thought it was. Now that just points right back to God because God exists outside of time. Therefore, let me say it this way, God is right now working in your past to prepare you for your future. Your past is not past to God. Everything for God exists in the eternal now. Everything for God is now. There's no past, there's no present as we understand it. Now that really makes our mind fry a bit because we are not infinite. We are finite. We are finite, but we are eternal in the sense of the word. Finite means we have a beginning point. God didn't have a beginning. God doesn't have an end. So time is really irrelevant to him because time becomes irrelevant like it becomes irrelevant for you to deduct 50 cents from your $20 billion in your checking account. So think about that. So then God, in this, in this concept of his, of his everlasting love, he is love. And because of that love, his wonderful creativity, he made us so we can enjoy all that he is and that all that he has done for us inside of this love that exists inside of the eternal now. Isn't that amazing? You can think about it for a second. and you, My mind can just kind of like roll, roll, roll. And I'm a little bit weird that way. I like like read Stephen Hawking's and all this quantum mechanics jazz. And I love listening to all that. I mean, they're going to all these links to disprove God and just building my faith, everything they say. It's like, oh my gosh, everything you're saying is like God all over it. But yet they just, they're just sort of blinded to the reality of God exists just like that. He created us out of love to fulfill his eternal plan to extend his family and in the divine wisdom, after it's all over, there will be a people that has authentically chosen him. Because we talked about last time, if you were going like to put, put like a tagline on the Bible, it'd be God the wedding planner. That is the summary of the entire 66 books of the Bible. God the wedding planner. Everything he is doing is to extend his family and the end result is going to be a bride for his son in the age to come. That means when you get to heaven, you're not going to go you're not going to go and talk to your mama as your mama or your dad as your dad or your brother. You're going to talk to them as siblings. Every relationship in the age to come will be brothers and sisters. 
because there's only, there's only one bride and one groom. In other words, every earthly relationship will yield to the eternal reality that we're going to live forever and ever and ever with Jesus, our groom. Now, that's like spectacular. It's hard for us to get. I can't wait to get to heaven to see grandma. Yeah, you're going to see grandma, but she's not going to be grandma. She's going to be your sister. I can't wait to see my son in heaven. Yeah, he's not going to be your son. He's going to be your brother because you're all siblings with one father and one groom. So every relationship is going to yield to the eternal reality of what is coming. This is what God is doing. God made us to extend his family in love for the purpose of relationship. So so the short answer to why he created us is because he wanted to. There was a desire inside of him, not a need, not because he was lacking anything, but he wanted to. Do you think God has wants and desires? Yes, God wanted to, to extend his family for ultimately his pleasure to show us what pleasure really is. The joy of the Lord, right? At, at, at his right hand, there are what pleasures forevermore. He, he made us to exist inside of his pleasure. Check this passage out. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. He, do, he did all this. Being created for God's pleasure does not mean humanity was made to entertain God or provide him with amusement. We are not mindless, robotic, automatons walking around here and God is the puppet master and we're on a bunch of strings he did not make us for his entertainment or amusement he made us out of love because he wanted somebody to love God is a creative being and it gives him pleasure to create God is a personal being and it gives him pleasure to have other beings he can have a genuine relationship with so you see, these are, they, these are things the Bible clearly teaches, but if you're like me, I lived a majority of my Christian life with minimal revelation on these truths. I kind of knew them, but I was like, no, God doesn't really want to hang out with me. I mean, I knew that God loved me in a kind of a, like, I love French fries kind of way. I get that. You know, I knew God loved me. But he actually loves me. That's why we have to use a lesser word to actually make the point and says that God actually likes me. He loves me, yeah, but he actually likes me. He, he likes for me to interact with him. He, he enjoys talking to me like I'm, the, like I'm the only one. Now, God is God, so guess what? He can interact with all of us at the same time in the same way and give us equal attention. He doesn't get overwhelmed. Ever get overwhelmed by people? Some of you who are in the room that are introverts, you know what it's like to get overwhelmed by people. It's like, I can't deal with any more people. I need to go shut myself in a room and detox for about two, three weeks, and then I can engage people again. God never feels that way. He never feels like he's overwhelmed by people. Remember, he exists in the eternal now. He's completely infinite and transcendent in his capability, his cognitive ability to interact with all of us personally. That's why John the Baptist, we talked about, I should say, John the, John the Beloved referred to him as the, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Remember we talked last time how that almost, like to me, that sounded kind of arrogant when you read the book of John. He's always referring to himself and the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's like, get over yourself, John. All right. But really, John had a revelation of the love of God. Read the book of John. See how many times he says that. And the disciple whom, he's like referring to himself in like the third person kind of thing. And the disciple whom Jesus loved. Yeah, yeah, Sean, we get the point. You, you, you think Jesus, you know, he thought of you as his favorite. Guess what? We're all his favorite. We're all his favorite kids. We're really all his favorites. And, and, it's, and it's true and it's genuine. Lord, help us get revelation on that. So the, so the question then, if he loves us this way and we understand that's why he made us, then how is communion with the Father even possible? How is communion even possible? So it's one thing to talk about this in kind of the ethereal sense. But like when we start pulling it down into like the day-to-day, like the 24 hours a day, seven days a week life that we actually live, how does it actually happen? How is this thing right here that's like 5 foot 11 and 3 quarter inches tall, right? How does this 
interact with God. How was this even, even possible? So now we need some theology, not just about God, but some anthropology and understanding who we are as human beings, how God made us to interact with him. And as we get these truths, we find out that he made us supernaturally able to engage him. We are like made by design. Now you know this, Genesis 1:26. then God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. So in the very beginning before God made us, he's, he's, he's having this conversation. So do you notice, do you notice the verbs here? In our image, not in my image, but there's a Hebrew majestic plural here that's talking about let us make God in our image. There again, we see God before he created humanity is in a perfect relationship with the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're having a conversation because, you know, people who love each other talk to each other, right? That's kind of a thing. So when you love, you actually talk to each other. So they're having a, like, conversation with each other. And they say, hey, let us, let's, let's, let's make man after, after, after our own image, the, the imago Dei. So when we were made, we were made in his image, and the image of God refers to the immaterial part of humanity. Now, why I say that, because that means God probably doesn't like have like a nose like we think of or, you know, have like ears like, like we imagine. Because if you remember the story, he takes the, the, the dirt of the earth and he forms a clay vessel that's really nothing. And then what does God do? He breathes in the clay, in the dirt, and man becomes a living soul. So it's really not about this, but it's about the DNA of God that he breathed in us, which was his DNA and his characteristics that we were made in his image. So it's not so much about does God have blonde hair or blue eyes or was he black or is he white, is he six foot tall? That's not what we're talking about. It's the, it's the, it's the immaterial essence of who God is. It sets human beings apart from the animal world. It sets us apart. Remember we talked about last time, the Greek word for man is anthropos. We get the word anthropology. Remember I told you my French, my French, um, my professor of Greek in graduate school, his name was French Arrington, but he taught Greek, but his name was French. Interesting. So he taught us that, that, the, that the word anthropos actually literally means to, to look up into the face of. Remember we said this a few weeks ago? In other words, every other mammal on the planet, as, as they walk, their, their eyes naturally point down toward the earth. But humanity, I mean, if you don't have arthritis or something, you know, if, you're, if you're walking sort of normal, where eyes are actually pointing upward. That's how, if you're walking with good posture, your eyes point upward, every other mammal's eyes point down. So God made us, even our skeleton is made to carry in such a way where our eyes look up and not look down. And God outfits us to have dominion over all things on the earth and enables us to commune with the maker of everything. Now, evolutionists want to tell us that we evolved from a primordial soup millions of years ago that began with a one cellular organism that somehow through this magic of proteins and amino acids and lightning hits it and you know the goose somehow comes to life and the amoeba becomes a, like a paraceum and the paraceum somehow swashes up on store up on the shore and sprouts a leg and somehow through that one living organism the variety of all life on the planet originated from a single-celled organism plant life bird life fish life insect life primate life mammal life I mean, you, just get, like, you, get, you really got to be kidding, right? People, people really believe this. Now, one of, the, one of the things that we see, though, in how God created us, if that were even remotely true, the chasm between a chimpanzee and a human being is gigantic. If evolution were true, you would see a natural progressive process a leading up to human beings. Yes, they pride themselves that you can train the chimpanzee to push some buttons and accomplish some things through your training, and they're smart things, but they're not human beings. 
They're not sentient. They're not able to recognize their own selves. I mean, we are way different than chimpanzees. Everybody get that? We're way different. We're able to contemplate the questions of the universe. We're able to engage in philosophical questions that chimpanzee, we so far surpass what an ape is in intellectual and cognitive ability and self-awareness. So to me, the whole argument of evolution erodes by that one simple principle, that we're able to be self we are able to be self-understanding and, and self-reflective. An ape can't do that. An ape does not lay down at night and contemplate the mysteries of the universe. It just doesn't. But we do. We ask these questions. We have an inquisitiveness about us. We have a curiosity about us. We have a creativity in us that comes from God. The first way God represents himself to us as God the creator. In the beginning, God what? Created. So the first thing we learn about God is he is a creator. What did human beings immediately start doing on day one? We start creating. We start building. We start painting. We start writing. We start creating things because we are made in the image of God. We, look at this room. This room is the product of human beings creating something. God provided all the raw material. Now, what we can't do is what's called ex nihilo. In other words, God made everything out of nothing, and we can't do that. Even though air supply says that you can make love out of nothing at all, it's just not true. Anybody listen to 80s love songs? All right, just make sure. Just doing a, doing a reality check. We can't make something out of nothing. But we still are creators. We can create out of that which God has given us. So when you think about the ability of human beings to take the raw materials that God has given us and look at what we've been able to do, it's pretty spectacular. It is a proof and a testimony that we were made in the image of God. We create just like our creator created. And we're doing the exact same things. So it is his likeness that we are in mentally morally and socially we'll move through this kind of quick we're like God mentally humanity was created as a rational volitional agent in other words human beings can reason and choose this is the reflection of God's intellect and freedom we talked last time, remember, that we think about the sovereignty of God. We oftentimes think about sovereign means God's in what? Control. And there's an aspect that's true that God is sovereign. Yes, he's in control, but it's beyond that. That's a limited understanding of sovereignty. Sovereignty, to me, speaks more of God is completely free. God is free. In other words, he is unhindered or unencumbered by anything. He is self-existing. God is totally free. There's none of us in this room right now that are totally free, are we? Because you're being held to the ground by gravity. You're actually, you're not totally free because gravity is like holding you to the ground right now. We're all under some type of control outside of us. God's not under any of that. He's totally free. I guarantee you if the oxygen left the room, we wouldn't all have very long to live. Right? We're all so dependent upon so many things. God is not dependent upon anything at all. He's given us freedom, and he's given us the power to choose, the power to think, the power to articulate. That's part of who God has made us to be as his creation. Just because we are created, we have these capabilities. I'm fascinated um, by child prodigies. I like to read about child prodigies. You know what child prodigies are? I was reading about one kid. I, I think he's... Um, Ukrainian, Romanian, from, from, from one of the Eastern European countries. And, and I, was, I was listening to a, a story about him. And he's like, he's like 12 years old. And he, he can write music at a way that he's already written like two or three symphonies. And he's, and he's 12 years old. He, is, he can compose music so fast that they had to design a computer just to keep up with the speed in which he could articulate music now I'm not a musician but I know that can't be very easy to do that write these write these musical notes and they ask him they said how are you able to do this he said I just see it like a ticker tape going across my brain and I and I and I can't write it fast enough he's like 11 12 years old now what does that what does that happen 
because creator God made all of humanity in his image and therefore when you see a prodigy like that you see like a little bump in the in the you know manifestation of the image of God in humanity in a very extreme way and you see the brilliance in that you hear about these little kids that are graduating college at you know 12 years old and you know these scientists all these things I mean how is that happening that's not some you know random gene mutation that's because we are still carrying the DNA of God as created people by our Heavenly Father. Notice I'm not saying sons and daughters of God. I'm talking about the creation of God. We're all made in the image of God. Even people who deny Him are still made in His image. Even people who deny God are still operating in the image of God because they're part of His creation. Mentally, cognitive ability. Anytime someone invents a machine, writes a book, plants a landscape, enjoys a symphony, names a pet, you are proclaiming that you're made in the image of God. We have incredible ability. Study the book of Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. When all the people of the earth begin to come together, they begin to get very proud and they begin to build a tower up to God. And look at the conversation that God has with himself. In other words, there's another example of a majestic plural God begins to have a conversation with Jesus and the Holy Spirit and he says he said look at the people of the earth look at them he said man we need to divide their languages because their heart now is in sin and he says these words nothing will be impossible for them why would God give that kind of accolade to humanity nothing will be impossible for them because he made us in his image and God knew unless I divide the ability of man to come together, they're going to do themselves great harm. So he divided them, their languages, and then people began to spread over the, around the world because they couldn't talk to each other, limiting their ability to what they could do when they harnessed the power together. But guess what? Guess what the age that we live in right now? We are much like the Tower of Babel so long ago now humanity can communicate in real time unhindered by language we can communicate and in a, in a very real way we can build another tower of babel and become our own gods and that is the spirit of the antichrist that's at work across the earth that will ultimately manifest in one man who will be the Antichrist and declare himself to be God. And then, of course, usher in the end times. So in a very real way, the Tower of Babel is playing itself out all over again. Because now we're not divided amongst our languages anymore. Now, think about it. The smartest people on the planet can communicate in real time globally thanks to technology. And do you think everything they're talking about is good? Do you think some of the stuff they're probably doing in some lab somewhere ain't so good? Probably so. If we're able to carry around the technology of this, can you imagine what's in some lab somewhere? And it's all being ultimately fueled toward this humanism, secular humanism, which is all the Tower of Babel was, that we are God. That I am God. I am my own God. I don't need you, God. I can take care of myself. So it's all leading that direction because we're all made in the image of God. And therefore, if I'm made in the image of God, sin says, well, if I'm in the image of God, then why can't I be God? And that's where we get in trouble because we're not God. You're in the image of God, but I am not God. He is, he, he is God. So we're like him mentally. We're like him morally. Humanity was created in righteousness and perfect innocence. A reflection of God's holiness. God saw that everything he made was what? Good. So part of what makes us unique that separates us from apes and gorillas and other animals is that we have a conscience, a moral compass, something that is inside of us that understands right and wrong. We see this throughout human history all the way back to a guy named Hammurabi in ancient Sumeria that we would discover through archaeology, Hammurabi's code. Not Christian, but created, 
right, created being, would establish moral laws and would write them down to govern people. So every time we see someone write a law or every time we see somebody recoil from evil or we will praise good behavior, oh, Johnny, you did so good today. Every time we make any kind of moral thing, where is that coming from? That's coming from God. It is the moral argument of an actual creator God because we have this sense in us of right and wrong. No matter where you go in the world, you can go to the farthest, you know, reaches of the aboriginal people in New Guinea and still amongst this tribe, there's still this innate sense, if I kill you, that's wrong. Or if I take something that belongs to you and, and I take it from me, there's a sense of like right and wrong. Where does that come from? There's no other animal that's thinking about that. It comes because we are made in the image of God. Human beings are the only animal, if you will, that will put their life in risk to save somebody they don't know. Think about that. A human being is the only person that will see another human being about to get hit by a bus, and they will jump and push that person out of the way, and they'll get hit. Humans are the only people that will run into a burning building to save the lives of people that they, that, they, that they don't know. That's not the maternal instinct. A mom or a dad would do that for their child, just like a bear would her cubs or a dog would her puppies. That's the maternal survival instinct. Humans go counter that. They will actually put their life at risk and go the opposite way toward evolution and actually die in saving somebody else. Where's that come from? That comes from God, the sense of morality that exists in every single one of us. It's one of the great proofs of God. Romans 2, 14, look at this. And then we'll land the plane here. Romans 2, 14. Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. So what's Paul saying? So where's the law written? It's on our conscience. It's this innate sense of right and wrong that every human being on the planet has. And boy, people who are atheists do not like this particular argument toward the creation, right? It's not just the cosmological argument that speaks to the created God who created everything, but it is the moral argument that speaks to reality. Where does this idea of right and wrong come from? You remove God from the equation, you remove all sense of morality. That's what happens. Anytime you make a moral statement, you have to have God to vindicate that statement. That's why when you go to the Supreme Court of the United States, guess what figures you see carved in? You're going to see Moses. You're going to see the lawgiver. You're going to see the Bible. You're going to see printed on American currency, in God we trust. Now, obviously, we've kind of drifted a bit. But the framers of our Constitution, not necessarily Christian, but they understood there was a God who was a lawgiver. So all laws come out of that. So we are like him in the mental sense, in the moral sense, and in the social sense. Humanity was created for fellowship. We were made to be in relationship with God and with each other. This reflects the triune nature of God. In Eden, humanity's primary relationship was with God. Adam did what? Walked with God in the cool of the day. How cool was that? Walked with God. There was another guy who walked with God by the name of Enoch. And the Bible doesn't say much about Enoch. It says he walked with God and then he was no more. That's pretty neat, isn't it? I guess he was just walking so close to God and like someone once said, well, God says, well, Enoch, I guess we're closer to my house than yours, so just come on with me. You know, I'm just, gonna, I'm just going to take you to my house. And then God recognized man should not be alone. And God had this really fantastic idea. God made the first woman. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. And if you're a man in the room, you'd say, amen. No, no, we, it's not good that we are alone. So every time someone gets married, every time someone makes a friend, every time someone 
hugs a child or attends church, he's demonstrating, we're demonstrating that we're made in the image of God because God is social. He's an, he, he made us to know him and to know each other, and he made woman. And yes, sin broke the relationships, but they did, he, sin didn't destroy the relationships. Relationships are broken because of sin, but they still do exist, and they're still precious. How many of you like to be with friends and to hug your mama? And, yeah, I mean, we, we, we need social activity, and that is part of who we are. And God was wise enough, wise enough to create us in such a way to reflect that's part of his character, mentally and socially and morally. So God hardwired our frame to connect with him in a real way that does affect every area. Mental, social, moral, every way. Now, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk then, then if God hardwired us for that, there is software that he has loaded on to the hardware to make things possible for us to commune and have an intimate relationship with him. We're going to find that religion then becomes the enemy of the relationship and intimacy God has called us into. So we're going to find out Satan, um, he's not going to come against us in ways that you might traditionally think. We get all weirded out because, you know, Halloween, the witches are out in the backyard sacrificing chickens. Oh, no, we need to pray against that. Listen, that's probably the lowest ranking demon in hell. That's like the private first class Gomer Pyle demon that's out with the little witch sacrificing the chicken. I know we get all freaked out about that, but I, but I promise you that's the least demon we should be concerned about. You know the demons I'm concerned about is religion. There's a big old demon principality called religion. There's a big old demon called unbelief. Those are the ones that set themselves against us. So don't get all worried about the Wiccans out in the backyard. I mean, they shouldn't be doing it. We'll just bless them and pray over them and take it. But listen, that's not what should freak us out. It's the subtle things that come against us. Remember, God is, is, has established us here, and there is an enemy that wants to kill, steal, and destroy the abundant life that God has given to us. If he can take that away from us, he is going to limit our ability here. And we're going to find out the insidious nature of what religion seeks to do to rob us from relationship with God. And there's actually tools that God has put in us, software he has loaded onto us that enables us to fight and to pray and to be victorious. And we're going to learn that together. Amen? Thank you. That was good. I enjoyed it. That was good. It really does help me. It helps me. So let's pray. Lord, thank you tonight. Thank you for your revelation that comes from knowing you. Lord, we are just amazed. God, I'm amazed. Lord, every time I look at this stuff, I'm just like, oh, God, I, what is man but that you are mindful of him? Or the psalmist so got it right. Lord, we are, what are we but that you are mindful of us? And that, Lord, you're more than mindful of us. You love us with an everlasting love. Lord, it's incredible and it is amazing. So Jesus, I pray today we would leave even tonight with a greater hunger for you. I ask you, Lord, that, Lord, there would be something in us that would search the scriptures. There would be something in us, God, that would draw close to you. And, Lord, say, Lord, teach us your ways, Lord. Teach us your heart. Lord, we are a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes. Lord, we want to maximize our life in this place for you. We want to bring before the judgment seat of Jesus one day gold, silver, and precious stones, the things that are of eternal consequence, that, Lord, we wouldn't waste our life on frivolity and all the things that are wood, hay, and stubble that don't last, that don't satisfy. So, Jesus, draw us close to you, your kindness leads us to repentance, Lord. Your goodness causes us to want to lay down stuff, to take on what you have for us and become the person that we actually are, not living in the false self, but living in the real self, the son and daughter of the Most High God. 
with the robe on our back and the ring on our finger and sandals on our feet, Lord, and the party that you're throwing, God, for all of us, Lord, and God, the bounty that comes, Lord, not from the treasures of this world, but of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, the things that, that, are, that are way beyond a price tag, the things that are ultimately priceless come from you. So I pray your blessing upon your sons and daughters tonight. Surround them. I ask you, Lord, God, give them dreams tonight. I ask you, Lord, to dance over them while they sleep. Lord, open their heart to revelation even while they rest. Wake them up in the night, God, with just visions. You've said in the last days, Lord, that old men would dream dreams and young men would see vision. Your young daughters and women, old and young alike, would prophesy. Lord, just I speak life to every single one of us that, Lord, we can step deeper and deeper into the river of the knowledge of God, moving us from information to revelation, God, to transformation, that we would be that aroma of Jesus that people smell. We would be that letter that people read, and we would present a gospel that's authentic and real to the dying world around us, offering hope, the only hope Lord, that exists on the planet is you, Jesus. So we love you, we bless you, and we thank you. Amen. Amen. Let's do it again.